This is a Federal News Network podcast. The State Department is revving up efforts to promote accessibility as part of its diversity and inclusion program. Its Bureau of Human Resources opened a new access center back in 2020 to help employees with disabilities with enabling technology. As employees return to their offices, State sees the Access Center as central to its workforce. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, Brian McCune. We're very focused on DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, and this is the way that we're trying to give meaning to accessibility to our disabled colleagues, to give them opportunities to have assistive technology that will help them at their workspace, whether it's here uh, domestically or on an overseas assignment. Some people may have new disabilities as their life and career go on, and they may need different things uh, as they get older. And so it's a a place for people to come to feel safe. It's confidential. They don't have to tell colleagues they're doing it and come here and understand what's available to them to help them do their job from wherever they're doing it. You mentioned, I believe, at the top of this conversation that this is really a team effort here, that you know, it, it's the Bureau of the Overseas Building Operations, the Office of Facilities Management Services. How can they you know, ultimately work together to support the accessibility of the department's facilities and transportation? I mean, it's a big agency. There's a lot of facilities. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a large department, uh, not as large as the Department of Defense, where I last served in the government, but we have a global platform. We have 100,000 employees, if you include contractors, and over 270 posts around the world. And so we do have some work to do still to make all of our facilities here and overseas uh, fully accessible to disabled people. One of the things we're working on and one of the things our disabled officers have asked is making sure that at every overseas post, there's at least one residence that is devoted to somebody who may have a disability. And with our embassies and consulates, we've been going through a decades-long process of upgrading the security and building new facilities after the embassy bombings in East Africa in the in the late 1990s. And as part of that process, we've got to make sure that the, the new facilities that we're constructing are adequately accessible for disabled colleagues. So there's still work to do, but uh, our colleagues in the Office of Overseas Building Operations and our domestic facilities folks are very much committed to this. Okay. And I mentioned a moment ago how this is a, an administration-wide priority, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. All four of those are things that agencies are really taking to heart. We've seen some equity plans from all agencies roll out here. To put a finer point on this, how does this access center promote these goals of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility? Accessibility, I think, being the most obvious one, being in the name here. Yeah, I think it's also about inclusion and making people feel that they are part of the team and and integrated into the fabric of the department, that they're not off to the side, that they're not being treated any differently, and that we're making sure that they are able to make full use of their talents. That's what, to me, what inclusion is about, is making people feel like they are part of the team and integral to it, and that we want to support them in the best way that we can so that they can put all of their talents to use on behalf of the American people. Recognizing that, you know, we are still uh, in a reimagining of the future of work, really. You know, telework has been a vital tool for the federal workforce for the past two years and counting. In terms of the State Department workforce, obviously there are jobs where it is vital to be on the ground in person doing that type of work. But how do you see telework continuing to be a vital tool for them? Well, telework is a reasonable accommodation, and we have a lot of jobs that uh, will have significant amounts of telework available to them, particularly if they don't work on classified issues, which will 
people who do work on classified issues of necessity have to be in the office more frequently. The entire country, the government and the private sector are having this conversation about the future of the workplace. And when we hope we get on the other side of this pandemic where we can get back to some kind of new normal, but it's clear that we are not going back to the status quo ante of February 2020, where most people come into the department every day. We're going to adjust and have a hybrid work environment that provides flexibility for employees, but it will be based on people's, primarily on people's job and, and function and whether they can perform their job remotely from not coming into the office versus whether they need to be in, in, to the, in the office more often. In fact, we're next week for us, we've had a significant amount of people coming in, into the department over the last six to eight months, probably on average um, 40 to 45 percent coming at least into the main State Department. But starting Monday the 25th, we're going to be at a stage that we call all functions in under our COVID workplace framework, where we'll, we'll then be in a posture where we'll be in what we label the hybrid work environment, a new framework where we have done this analysis of every position and their maximum telework eligibility. But there will be more people coming into the department next week and the week succeeding. Okay. And just so I fully understand that hybrid work environment, that's a, a reality where telework is a, a regular thing for some portion of the workforce. People are coming in some days of the week. People are staying home some other days of the week. Yeah. So the way we've done it, and we've really done some analysis of this and set a model because comparing to other department agencies, I don't think they've done it quite the same way, which is to say we came up with what we call a mobility assessment tool, essentially a questionnaire that examines every position by mission or function and comes up with a maximum telework uh, eligibility score. And then our supervisors and employees would have a conversation to decide, okay, this is how much we're comfortable with you teleworking, and they come to an agreement on it. But it's still, the mission still has to be performed. Our first principle here is mission first. So even if somebody is telework eligible for three or four days a week, if suddenly there's some crisis work that is required, uh, greater on-site presence, managers can adjust and ask people to come in. But the new normal will be that we're not going to have 95% of the people in the department on a day-to-day -day basis. It's going to be a smaller number because more people will be teleworking. We have a lot of positions that don't require classified work, and if people want to telework several days a week and they're eligible to do it, that's what they're going to do. You know, I imagine there are unique hurdles to candidates with disabilities in terms of the federal hiring process. What can the agency do more broadly to make sure that candidates with disabilities have an easier time navigating the federal hiring process? I mean, we're required to provide reasonable accommodations everywhere, and we do it in the hiring process as well. And we have the ability to provide sign language interpreting during an interview and reader services and longer test times in the Foreign Service written and oral exams. So we have ways to provide some accommodations. Obviously now with technology and online applications for positions, that's an easier thing for people to do than to have to fill out a long application by hand in the, in the old days. So technology is our friend in this space and making, making it easier for people to apply. We've seen the State Department really lay out a lot of thoughtful comments and future actions in terms of a, an equity action plan, one of many that we've seen across the federal government. In terms of that action plan, how do you see the State Department setting a higher bar for accessibility? For the State Department, that we have several areas of focus under our equity action plan. We're trying to integrate it into our foreign policies generally, which is in terms of 
overseas are diplomats engaging with marginalized and underserved communities that might not always be part of the conversation, not part of the elite communities that typically embassies engage with on a regular basis. Trying to think about it as we develop in our foreign assistance and our public diplomacy programs, same thing, targeting marginalized communities that are not part of the daily life of that society. And this is part and parcel of our work on democracy and human rights. Brian McCune, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target Red Card, you'll save 5% every day, in-store and online. Find the red card that's right for you. Whether it's debit, credit, or Target's new Red Card Reloadable, which doesn't require an existing bank account or credit check. With Target Red Card, you'll get exclusive deals and free shipping on most items. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. It's always a great day to save. Restrictions apply.